This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says, save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says, save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! From BBC Science Focus magazine, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alex Hughes, staff writer at BBC Science Focus magazine. This week, I'm joined by the writer Brett Scott. He's the author of Cloud Money, Cash, Cards, Crypto, and the War for Our Wallets. He tells me about Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, asking whether they can actually be viable currencies. People often have slightly different views on this, but to start off, what is a cryptocurrency? Well, the original version of cryptocurrency was Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is traditionally described as a decentralized digital currency, but I don't find that a very informative description you actually look at what how the bitcoin system operates it's essentially a system for issuing tokens okay so it's a token system and it's a a way for a network of strangers so people who do not know each other who are scattered across the world the way for a network of strangers to kind of get together and follow a set of rules by which they will issue tokens and move them around between themselves Right. Now, historically, that's quite a difficult task to do. Historically, how we move digital money between people would be to use these large central institutions like banks who will keep track of account balances. So think about, for example, when you're interacting with your contactless card on the London Underground, what's happening is you're sending a message to your bank asking them to edit your account and to essentially transfer money to the account of the transport for London or the train companies, essentially, right? 
So these big institutions stand between you and the other person you're, or the institution you're interacting with, right? The crypto systems or the Bitcoin system in particular was a system designed for trying to do the movement of tokens between a large-scale network of strangers without the use of these central intermediaries. Unfortunately, though, what's the, well, the, the sort of technological infrastructure of Bitcoin is ingenious, but the actual monetary part of it is very crude. So the way I uh, often get people to think about it, and I've actually was involved in the early Bitcoin community, which will around 2011, 2012. So I've had a lot of experience with Bitcoin. It's very similar to, for example, if I, if I was to give a, give a physical analogy, imagine uh, taking a big sheet of glass, for example, and then punching a whole bunch of glass discs out of it. All right. Or like crafting a whole bunch of essentially, like, you know, disc-like objects. All right. And then handing them out and then saying, okay, here's a monetary system. Now, the crypto systems are very similar to this. Essentially, you have a system for, for like creating these digital objects, which are quite featureless. They don't really have any kind of they did, they're basically just these sort of, you just got to imagine them as sort of floating digital objects that you can move around, right? And they are numbered. So they have the superficial appearance of being money-like. But in the, certainly in the early days of Bitcoin, nobody quite knew what exactly these objects were. You could just simply assign them from one person to another, but there was a lot of confusion as to what exactly they were supposed to be. It was only later that the whole kind of speculative market developed around these and they started to come to have a monetary price, Nowadays, many people sort of think of Bitcoin as a monetary system, but really it's, it's, far more, it's far more accurate to think about it as a, almost like imagine sort of like limited edition medallions, digital medallions that you can pass around, all right? So that have money-like branding pasted over them um, that you can use for forms of exchange, but that really rely upon the existing monetary system, right? Because you actually can't exchange Bitcoin for things unless it has a dollar price. The sort of mechanism via which, you know, for example, if you read a news story where they say, you know, a person used Bitcoin to buy a pizza, for example, a person buys something with Bitcoin, they're not actually buying anything with Bitcoin. They're using a process called counter trade. Counter trade is the use of non-monetary objects for exchange via their monetary price. And this takes a little while to understand, but one of the easiest ways to understand this is to, is to think about, imagine you go into a store, all right, and you've bought, let's say, uh, a jacket, and you buy it for 100, 100 pounds. You leave the store, and then you decide, actually, I don't really like this jacket. Um, I want to swap it for something, or I want to get my money back. So you walk, you walk back to the store, and you and you essentially, you have two options when you get to the store. They can either give you a refund, they can give you your £100 back, or they can say to you, you can swap it for something of equivalent price, okay? Now, let's say you choose that latter option and you say, okay, I want to get these pair of jeans for £100 instead, okay, quite expensive jeans, but let's say you do that. Now, imagine you're an alien watching from outer space this interaction. You will see somebody at the counter of the store handing over a jacket for jeans, now, that alien might say to themselves, oh, it seems like these people use these uh, jackets as a form of currency. What's actually happening there is that you're implicitly are returning the jacket, getting £100 and using the £100 to buy the jeans. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, I'm with you. All right, so that's counter trade. All right, you're basically using the monetary price of two objects to decide upon an exchange ratio. And it superficially looks like perhaps barter. 
Okay, but it's actually you taking two monetary transactions, superimposing them over each other, and then canceling out the money part. Now, that's how all Bitcoin, um, quote-unquote, purchases happen. So when somebody says, I bought a pair of jeans for Bitcoin, and let's say the pair of jeans cost 100 pounds, they had to first calculate how much Bitcoin they could buy for 100 pounds to decide upon the exchange ratio between Bitcoin and the and the pair of jeans. So they're essentially, what you're implicitly doing is actually using pounds in that situation because your alternative would be to sell the Bitcoin for 100 pounds, use that to buy the jeans. So a lot of these transactions in the crypto ecosystem are actually rooting through the normal monetary system, but it superficially looks as though it isn't. And this is very easy to uh, confirm because you'll notice, for example, when somebody quotes you a Bitcoin price for something, it constantly fluctuates every 30 seconds, well, basically every second as the price of the Bitcoin in a currency fluctuates. One of the places you're seeing this right now is in El Salvador, all right, where apparent it's sort of claimed that Bitcoin is now currency in El Salvador. But, you know, when you normally walk into a restaurant, and let's say you, you order a meal at a restaurant and you say the cost of the meal is $20. You expect by the end of the meal, the cost is still going to be $20, right? In El Salvador, if you had to see the Bitcoin price of your meal, it would constantly fluctuate over the course of your, of your meal as the US dollar price of Bitcoin fluctuates, right? Because it isn't actually priced in, in Bitcoin, it's actually priced in US dollars, and they will be using that US dollar price to decide upon counter-trade ratio. Sorry, that sounds quite complicated. But the basic point is that actually most crypto transactions right now still root through the normal monetary system. But that in itself is very interesting, right? That's not a that's not like something that's an invalid feature. So what is quite interesting now in the global monetary system is that you're starting to see this much higher use of use of counter-trade, as it were, that process of using non-monetary objects for exchange. So you certainly can swap Bitcoin tokens for things um, via its monetary price. And that is actually worth, does have a lot of marginal or sort of partial uses. So for example, if you are indeed a political dissident in a country where your bank account's been blocked, you might be able to use this as a temporary stopgap measure to survive whilst being very aware that just you're going to be subject to this this extreme fluctuations in its price all the time so could you say in a way that it's a a slightly slightly broken financial system that's hiding behind smart technology or is it something that does work it's just takes a convoluted route to do it you know i'm often called a crypto skeptic you know but i'm (laughs) I, I don't really see myself like that, you know. I, I can see Bitcoin's got a very ingenious technological design. I mean, there's a very beautiful almost mechanism to move the tokens around. It's just that the tokens that have been moved around are very crude. So it's it's a it's a it's a very sophisticated way of moving very crude objects around. And again, that's insofar as those objects become seen to have speculative values like collectibles that does end up having certain uses you can use volatile swappable collectibles as a form of exchange just like i can use collector's edition medallions from a antiques shop if i wanted to i could try to exchange those with people but you know and this and bitcoin is just like a, a much more sophisticated version of that because you can do it across borders and stuff right so you know that's that's like a 
that that is an authentic use. But because I often reject the idea that it's actually a monetary system competing with the US dollar, for example, I get called a crypto skeptic. But the way I, can't, I tend to put it is I like to call a spade a spade. And the act of calling a spade a, a spade is not the same as insulting a spade. Spades can be very useful. Uh, but people who have an interest in promoting Bitcoin as some kind of golden sword tend to get pissed off with me when I uh, say it's a spade. You know, they tend to get irritated with me. But for me, you know, that's useful. I've used those tokens before. I've counter-traded Bitcoin for things in markets before. I can see its use for sure. I know Bitcoin comes with many technicalities and you've heard them all before, but do you think Bitcoin could technically become a currency or is it? are there too many roadblocks? I personally don't think so, no. Um, but I come from a very particular way of thinking about money, which is credit theories of money, where you essentially, which is a long, it's a long kind of tradition in monetary thinking, where you see money, or at least the most effective forms of money being essentially like uh, systems of promises, legally set within legal systems. Okay, so this is a tradition called chartalism. Um, at least, well, chartalism is one branch of credit theories of money. It's, it sort of goes against a lot of the traditional uh, way that money is presented, which is a, some kind of commodity. Okay, so credit theories of money and commodity theories of money tend to be at odds with each other. A lot of crypto imagery is drawn from commodity theories of money, where it's imagined that somehow money is some kind of like substance of value that carries value around. So if you ever hear these like types of statements where people say stuff like money stores value or Money is a, you know, payment systems are a value transfer system. They're invoking this kind of imagery of some kind of like substance that flows around, right? And it sort of carries value with it. This is very like commodity thinking on money, right? So it fetishizes money as somehow having this inherent value in itself. Whereas the type of sort of thinking I come from looks at money as essentially kind of like access token system. So units of credit that are passed around for actual goods and services. Um, so when you look at Bitcoin, it has a lot of it has a lot of like structural problems because it is essentially if you if you think about like let's think about gold for example. Like gold is often claimed to be a type of true commodity money. Okay. Um, even though historically gold was always issued by monarchs and was often sort of its value was often dictated by quote unquote by fiat, all right. But at least superficially, gold looks like a commodity currency, right? It looks like it's a sort of substance of value that people can observe. And if you compare that now to like you say your units in your bank account, uh, units in your bank account are uh, essentially. And this gets a bit complicated, but liabilities issued by banks, right? They're essentially promises issued by banks, okay? Now, Bitcoin is neither of those. It's a sort of like, it sort of superficially looks like numbers you might find in your bank account, okay? So it actually, it's, it is, it's on a ledger in, in much the same way as a bank account is, but it explicitly isn't a legal liability of any institution. It tries to associate itself with gold, by kind of like wrapping itself in this branding, right? All this imagery of gold. And yet it kind of like isn't either of those things. And strangely enough, like quite a few what are called like gold bugs, people who sort of these sort of quite conservative monetary thinkers who believe that we should all be using gold as money, reject Bitcoin, all right? So a lot of the old school gold bug community doesn't think Bitcoin actually qualifies as being anything like a commodity currency. 
they essentially see it as a sort of digital unit just that's sort of masquerading as being something like a, a gold. And you can kind of like test this if you, if you went to an Olympic athlete and you said, do you want to swap your gold medal for a digital gold medal? You know, and it's actually most human beings would be like, ah, what, what is digital gold supposed to be, right? We, we value actual gold. So I think Bitcoin has just a number of structural problems where it's constantly having to try and like create this mythology or that it's some kind of commodity. And yet some people, at some level, everyone kind of knows that it's, there's something like dubious about that. And it's, which is why it's now so highly subject to these like speculative flows, because really it's just become an object traded within the normal monetary system. And yeah, you know, that's, that's kind of where it's sitting right now. And I don't see how it's going to get out of that. Even if its price goes, you know, wildly up, that's not going to somehow like turn it into money. Like when Apple shares go wildly up, they don't become a monetary system. Talking about that kind of jump up and down and some of the more problematic parts of Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency community, it allows non-finance professionals to get involved. They can make their own currencies. You don't have to be all that informed to invest. Do you think that's a, a flaw of the product or is that in some way actually a positive? I mean, I don't really... Look, the history of financial markets is full of speculative things that people bet on, right? It's like, that's like nothing new. I don't really have a position on whether people should be betting on Bitcoin or not, to be honest. Certainly, there's been huge amounts of abuse, not only of Bitcoin, but, you know, but just like generally the whole, all the whole crypto mania, because you know, any old opportunist could sort of set up their own uh, essentially digital machine to spit out tokens and then try to sell them to people for, for like pounds and dollars. Cyberspace is like littered with these useless digital objects that were branded as being something and they've been sold for like money to people right and you know but i'm like there's a part of me that's like okay there should be some kind of like uh awareness raised as to how dodgy that is but i can sort of understand that you know many people in the global economy like the speculative thrill of trying to buy and sell these things right and this um Unfortunately, lots of people get shafted along the way. I and mean, if you go into YouTube, for example, and you can find countless testimonies of people who've like lost all their savings and trying to like buy into some kind of crypto token. But again, that's not a particularly new phenomenon. That's been occurring for like hundreds of years in financial markets. I think what's quite sort of new about these crypto tokens is that they often have like no story. Traditionally, with like highly speculative shares and things, you know, I actually used to work in financial markets, but like your traditional speculative markets, there would at least be some kind of the shares being bet on would be an actual legal claim upon something happening in the world. So for example, if you buy a biotech stock, it's a legal contract that says, if that group of people down there in those labs manages to do something and sell it to people, you get a legal claim upon the results of that. And that's a very highly uncertain prospect you don't know if they're going to be able to make the thing that they claim but at least it is a legal guarantee that you can and if they don't give it to you you can sue them whereas crypto tokens often just make zero claim as to like why you should buy them just be like you should buy them because a bunch of other people are going to buy them you know that's it's it's a purely self-referential market often you know not all of them but like a large portion of the crypto tokens have been like that which is why i guess a lot of financial regulators and sort of these consumer protection groups would be like you should be extremely concerned about these because they operate heavily on fomo right this fear of missing out 
So I'm sure you've seen friends around yourself who suddenly asking you whether they should buy some kind of like dodgy token promoted by somebody on Facebook. You know, it's, it's all over the place now, that kind of like uh, speculative frenzy. But yeah, I don't really, I'm not necessarily moralistic about that, you know. Uh, that's something I guess we have to work out as a society. And I think maybe maybe a good extension to what we were saying, at the time of this recording, cryptocurrencies are crashing in value. Bitcoin, Ethereum, a lot of the big names and everything else that comes with it as well. Is that something that could be resolved or is the instability just part of the system? The instability is inherent. You know, as I said, look, if in traditional financial markets, let's take, for example, that example of a biotech stock I just uh, share, I just mentioned. You know, let's say there's a company has 100 people and you can watch what they're doing. And, you know, in the early stages of a company like that, there's a lot of uncertainty. You don't really know much about what's going to happen. So there can be wild fluctuations in the price of that share as people try to guess what's going to happen. But as you get more and more information, you theoretically are supposed to come to like a slightly more realistic price of like what you think the share is going to be worth, right? Because you're calculating the future prospects of this company. Now, so financial market bubbles occur when people are sort of wildly overestimating the future prospects of companies. But eventually those bubbles kind of like crash because people sort of see the reality, all right, as it sort of plays out into the future. The problem with crypto tokens is that there isn't really any tethering to an underlying story so you can never really tell if they're overvalued or undervalued there isn't actually any uh, methodology to work that out whereas in the stock markets there are methodologies there are people who will go out and argue that say that's massively overvalued because i've i know what's actually going to happen in the company i know that that's overvalued right so there's these big battles whereas in the crypto world how do you make these arguments because essentially these are often almost purely sort of self-referential speculative markets. And so like it very quickly can just crash out of nowhere, right? As a vague sentiment swing happens, which is also why it's very dangerous to push this message that Bitcoin, for example, is some kind of like technology, some kind of like system that'll be very empowering to people in the developing world, right? So a lot of these crypto promoters go and they try to associate crypto tokens with you know, helping people in, for example, you know, Uganda, there's a lot of like use of African countries in the marketing of, of crypto tokens. People say, oh, this is going to be empowering for people in these places. And like, actually low income families are pretty, it's pretty bad. And people are subject to like massive wild swings in, in prices of things when you have low amounts of savings, right? So it's pretty like irresponsible, I'd say, when you like trying to promote these types of investments to low-income communities anywhere in the world. That's what happens there, of course. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was Brett Scott. If you want to know more about the state of cryptocurrencies and physical money, check out his book, Cloud Money. Or to hear him tell me about the death of cash and why we should be worried about it, head over to Instant Genius Extra, available only on Apple Podcasts. The new issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy in store or visit sciencefocus.com. 